Well, good morning again. My name is Michael, in case I have not had a chance to meet you yet. And I don't know if you know about this new song that is taking the globe by storm, recently breaking into the top 10 Billboard songs, and unofficially having been dubbed the Pandemic Moms Anthem. The lyrics go like this. I'm the strong one. I'm not nervous. I'm as tough as the crust of the earth is. I move mountains. I move churches. And I glow because I know what my worth is. But under the surface, I feel berserk as a tightrope walker in a three-ring circus. Under the surface, was Hercules ever like, yo, I don't want to fight Cerberus? Under the surface, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. If you didn't catch it already, these are the lyrics from one of the most recent Disney movies called Encanto, a movie about a family who, in a moment of fleeing warfare in their home city, are given magical powers in a particularly intense moment of grief. Now, these powers would make this family the center of a hidden magical town, but problems arise when the pressure is put on these gifts to make everything a certain kind of perfect. Don't worry, I won't give away any spoilers. I won't talk about Bruno. <laughs> okay, I see many of you have watched it. You should just go watch it if you haven't seen it. Because I think this song and this movie are both something of a parable for a broken human tendency that we have when it comes to relationship. So often we lose sight of the who of our relationships because we're focusing too much on the what. What do I get from you? What can I get from you? When things are hard, we might run because we aren't getting what we want. Even, what can I tirelessly give to others so that I feel like I am worth the space that I take up? I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. How we relate with one another then also informs how we relate with God. And this has been a temptation from the very beginning. When we lose sight of the who of God, then it turns this potentially beautiful and life-giving relationship into a flat supply chain of goods, just like we might do to one another. Well, this morning we have two mysterious passages that invite us back into the who of God. So let's dive in and hear how both our Genesis passage and our gospel passage pull us back into the who of God in hopes that we would rediscover ourselves, who God is beyond what he gives us and who I am beyond merely what I do. So first, our Old Testament reading, because it kind of prepares the soil for our gospel reading. In Genesis, we see God making promises to Abraham in some pretty unique ways, to say the least, and they have specific meaning. That meaning would be lost by the time of our New Testament reading by so many followers of Abraham. But Jesus will recapture it. Now, the main character of our Old Testament story is Abram, soon to be renamed Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Now, this name change happens because of promises that God makes to Abram. A few chapters earlier, God had said, I will make you a great nation, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a pretty amazing promise to Abram. Your lineage will be great, and it will make other nations great. 
But when we find Abram in our passage, some serious time has passed since that promise, and he was getting a little antsy. He was getting up there in years, and he didn't have any children yet. Abram and God continue to talk, and God reaffirms Abram's offspring and that they will be as numerous as the stars. So Abram asks a question that I think many of us might ask if we were in his shoes. Oh Lord, how am I to know? This is the question of an ancient nomadic household father, and it begs for the Lord to answer. And I wonder how many of us this morning find ourselves in a similar question-asking posture. Lord, how do I know that I'm on the right path? How do I know this relationship is right? How do I know I'm in the right career or major, that I'm making the right decisions? Lord, how do I know you're really there? These are the kinds of questions on the lips of Abram. And this is the man that multiple religions trace their lineage back to. Father Abraham, the fountainhead of God's blessing to be poured into the world. And this man was dubbed righteous and was asking a hard question. So if you find yourself in a similarly questioning posture this morning, I hope you hear the implicit permission to continue asking them, to, to continue leaning into these questions. But let's look at God's response, because we see a lot about how God relates to these kinds of questions in it, how Abraham might in fact know. God encompasses Abraham, Abram's question with the who of God. And God does this by making a specific kind of promise, a divine covenant. Now, admittedly, Genesis 15 is a pretty mysterious scene for us. We might be tempted to think this is just God's way of being dramatic while making a promise. Abram, I really mean it, pinky swear. But if we dive into the particulars of divine covenant, we begin to see a theme that will reach all the way into our gospel passage. Covenants themselves were not a new idea to the Bible. All kinds of ancient covenants took place through a similar kind of ritual that, as the one that we find in our story. They would dismember animals, set them up apart from each other, and make something of an aisle to walk down. Now imagine two kings coming together to make a truce or an allegiance. This was a way of forging a relationship and it said, if either one of us breaks the promises that we're making here today, breaks our relationship, then may it be done to me as it has been done to these animals. It makes me very glad that we can just hire a notary to get our contracts done today. But what makes this covenant divine? Different from your run-of-the-mill ancient Near Eastern covenant. I think three things in particular. First, God always blesses some for the sake of many. When God blesses Abram, it's one singular family, and even though that family would grow and grow and grow through the years, it was still one family. But remember what God said, through this one family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so it was with God's other covenants through the Bible. He blesses Israel under Moses so that the whole world would be able to see the character of God. He blesses David's line so that the whole world would be able to recognize the Messiah who is coming to rescue us all. God's covenantal identity, what he tells us about himself, is that he always blesses some for the sake of many. 
too. God forges a relationship here. In other words, though there are plenty of details to this covenant, i.e. the what of the covenant, the primary focus is on the people that are involved, the who. One theologian was seeking a definition of covenant and offers this attempt. He says, when God enters into a covenantal relationship with humanity, he sovereignly institutes a life and death bond. In its most essential aspect, the covenant is that which binds people together. The result of a covenant commitment is the establishment of a relationship. And it's this relationship that's at the core of our passage. In other words, God answers Abram's question, how might I know, by essentially saying, I'll show you who I am, and I promise to keep walking with you. I promise that this relationship will never go away. God's covenants are not a promise to provide goods and services. They are a promise to never walk away from the table of our relationship with him. So God blesses some for the sake of many, forges a relationship, and lastly, perhaps most importantly, God takes the responsibility. Now you'll notice that this contractual ceremony does not go as planned. They don't both walk down the aisle like it would have normally been done. God knocks out Abraham before he can walk down the aisle of promise, and instead, God walks down twice, taking the responsibility for the actions of both parties onto himself. This is central to the who of God. The message is this. Yes, we each have our own parts of the bargain to keep up in this relationship, but even if you falter on your part, and you get the sense that God knew that Abram would falter, Israel would falter, that we falter, but even if you falter on your part, it will not be you that bears the fallout, who's destroyed. It'll be me. This is the pattern of all the covenants of the Bible. He takes the burden of covenant breaking onto himself. In this way, through the covenants of the Old Testament, as we see them progress, we see this embedded good news of Jesus already there. Every successive covenant has a particular outworking for that moment, but they all look beyond themselves as God progressively narrows his scope to show us more and more specifically where to look for the Messiah, the rescuer of Israel, who would reforge our relationship with God so that we might know the fullness of life again. Now, this thread of forward-looking covenants is what shapes the Jewish mindset at the time of our gospel reading. Through the years of exile leading up to this time, many of Abraham's children had begun to cling so tightly to the idea of rescue, which makes all the sense in the world in their particular circumstances. They'd clung so tightly to the idea of rescue that they had forgotten the who of the rescuer. Now we're ready to hear the challenge of our gospel passage. So let's look first at the question that's put to Jesus. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? A couple things to notice here. First, this is a question of exclusion, not inclusion. This person did not ask, how many are they who will be saved, but rather, how few are they going to be? In other words, where are the boundaries? Who's in? Who's out? 
the expectations in the question is that the in crowd was probably not going to be very big. This person is treating the kingdom more like, if anyone watched The Little Rascals, their club, the He-Man-Woman-Haters Club. The focus is on who we keep out. Girls, great, that's simple. Rather than on the focus being how many we might possibly be able to welcome in. Notice also that the focus of the question is solely on the future. In its context, this question has to do with receiving final salvation specifically. The question itself has little to do with who God is now, which is ironic because he's standing right in front of this person. Rather, it has more to do with what God will do in the future, his covenantal goods and services provided. Both of these dynamics, exclusive and impersonal, are opposite the covenantal thrusts of God's promises. God longs to give a wide invitation for relationship rather than a narrow invitation, merely providing the goods of his promises. Lord, will those who are saved be few? The question is all wrong. So let's hear Jesus' response. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now Jesus does not respond directly to the question. Anytime I tried to do this in school, it only served to tell the whole room that I had no idea what I was talking about. But when Jesus does it, it's because he sees a more important question underneath the question. And in this way, as one commentator points out, Jesus turns a potentially speculative dialogue about salvation into a pointed existential challenge. Strive to enter the narrow door. It's interesting to note also that this is a plural charge. Strive, y'all. We Southerners get to really understand that one. In other words, let's refocus together to strive because salvation is not just for the future. It's something that's happening right now. It takes striving. So this word literally in the Greek is the word agonizomai, where we get our word agony from, but it doesn't yet have the inherently negative connotations that we know about it. It describes intensely engaging in a struggle like an athletic contest. In other words, it takes a pound of flesh, so to speak, the striving, and strive towards the narrow door. It seems like Jesus might be affirming the narrow hopes of our question asker, but the narrow door itself supports the striving here. Every now and then, in the middle of the night, one of my boys will wake up screaming because of a nightmare. And so I wake up in a sleepy, groggy situation with half a degree of intentionality, and half the time as I'm running into their room, I run smack into the doorframe of their room, which probably terrifies them and leaves me with a bruise the next day. Strive with great intentionality, Jesus says. Don't sleepwalk. Through this call. In other words, the call for us today is this, don't dabble in Jesus. This whole seeking God endeavor is not a hobby. It's not another charm on the bracelet of our lives. It is all-encompassing of who we are. And Jesus challenges us to begin it now, not later. He says, many will seek and will not be able. One time, Hannah and I went to a 
third world country to teach at a Bible college there and to share the story of Jesus in some of the surrounding areas. Now, this was a very story-based and relational culture, but the story of Jesus, as it had been presented to them previously, had been unhelpfully truncated. It was amazing for us to hear how many times people responded with the same line, I'll profess faith on my deathbed, because they wanted to be able to drink and party, which was something that was really gripping this nation uh, in a difficult way. They wanted to still be able to drink and party while they were young and still get the goods of salvation in the end. Now, on one level, this might be the kind of person Jesus is talking about, who will seek at a later time to enter, but find themselves not, be, uh, not able to. But the focus here is not on timing. The focus here is on relationship. We see this as Jesus continues with his parable. You know, we're tempted to think that this is just a parable warning us about procrastination. But as Hannah and I heard these regular responses on our trip, we realized something that the story of Jesus that these folks had been given, the way the story was told, was focused on the what more than the who. It was focused on the goods of salvation rather than on the beauty and the dynamism of a relationship with Jesus now. Now, perhaps this is why Jesus continues with a parable that unpacks this idea of relationship. He says, the kingdom of God is like a household, where many folks are welcomed in, into a banquet, we come to find out. However, some come to the door after it's been closed, and on further examination, they're not given access. Now, at the first read, the response of the master of the house seems unfair. It probably leaves us a little shaken in our boots. We might even recall Abram's question, how do I know? How do I know that I'll be admitted to the house? Folks come to the door who want in but are denied. And we're left with the question, why were they left out? The answer, I think, is embedded in the response of the master, which he says twice. So you know it's important. He says, I do not know where you come from. Now, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, where you come from is the core of who you are. It's a central part of knowing somebody. We see this all over the Bible as we read it. You'll have a name in the place that they come from. I love how Eugene Peterson phrases the master's response in his translation of the Bible called The Message. He says, your kind of knowing can hardly be called knowing. You don't know the first thing about me. Now, perhaps if they had had a chance to answer the master's challenge, they might have said, where do I come from? I come from Jerusalem, the line of Abraham. But the master proactively replies to this. He says, Abraham's in here, as are the prophets, the voices that I sent to remind you about who I am and how much I love you, but you ignored them. Jesus brings the focus of the question back to where it always should have been, the here and now. The master of the house who is before us and is holding the door wide open so that all the families of the earth can choose to enter in. Strive now to enter through the narrow door. Don't dabble now and inquire later. Don't minimize Jesus into an idea to be studied and not a person to be known. Give yourselves now to this relationship with the master of the house. Even to those who were born into the lineage of the covenants, if you turn those covenants into a supply chain for goods of blessing 
and you lose sight of the maker of the promises, even you might find that the loving voice of God has become foreign to you. Now, if we stop here, we might think that Jesus has joined the narrow scope of the question that he was asked. Jesus' call seems like a really hard thing only for professionals. It seems that the door has been closed for most people and that those who are truly saved will be indeed a small number. But Jesus doesn't leave that open to us. He describes a banquet table where the master's guests are reclining, a luxurious image. And those guests are coming, importantly, from the north, south, east, and west, which represents the Gentiles, the non-Jews, those outside of the line of Abraham. That they would have a seat at the table was hard for many Jews to swallow at the time. But it is they who are eating at the table with Abraham and his lineage. It's because they strove to enter the narrow door. Narrow only because it focused on the host of the banquet, Jesus. They were able to see the who of God and to find their own who in him. So in other words, no, those who are being saved will not be few. This is a lavishly large banquet table. We will undoubtedly be surprised at some of those who are sitting around the table. The standards for entry are not as exclusionary as what some around Jesus might have hoped for, but the non-negotiable is that we strive to know the host of the banquet. Those who are left out in Jesus' parables are like wedding crashers, folks who don't know the couple getting married, who don't care to know the couple getting married, but they still want to take advantage of the open bar. The posture of faith that is focused on the open bar on the goods and services, will flatten out the love that God has for us into a supply chain of prosperity. But Jesus doesn't promise us prosperity. He promises us himself. We can't approach faith in Jesus by asking, what do I get out of it? Or how do I prove that I'm worthy enough to receive it? Instead, let us never tire of striving to ask, who is this God that I get to be with? We have to let ourselves be loved by Jesus more than just the receiving. And we have to love Jesus more than just the doing. Now I'd like to close with Jesus' mournful image at the end of our reading. Though he has just said some pretty tough words for those in the line of Abraham, listen to his posture towards them still, which is no less his posture towards us. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Now, we have plenty of free-range chicken owners in this church, so you will know that mother hens have a reputation for being unusually protective of their little chicks. You'll hear about this protectiveness in many ways, but there's one common story that, that is so stark that it stands out above the rest. It's exampled by this one man's experience. After a forest fire had been brought under control, a group of firefighters were working back through the devastation. As they marched across the blackened landscape, a large lump on the trail caught a firefighter's eye. As he got closer, he noticed it was the charred remains of a large bird that had burned nearly halfway through. 
Since birds can so easily fly away from the approaching flames, the firefighter wondered what must have been wrong with this bird that it could not escape. Was it sick? Was it injured? Arriving at the carcass, he decided to kick it off the trail with his boot. As soon as he did, however, there was a flurry of activity around his feet. Four little birds flailed in the dust and ash and then scurried away down the hillside. The bulk of the mother's body had covered them from the searing flames. Though the heat was enough to consume her, it allowed her babies to find safety underneath. In the face of the rising flames, she had stayed with her young. Her dead body and her fleeing chicks told the story well enough. She gave the ultimate sacrifice to save her young. This very story is not uncommon and was undoubtedly on the mind of Jesus in his reference. Much like the baby chicks, we are all too often running around in a burning forest trying to find what's safe. Where is safety in an unsteady and unpredictable world? What do I do to earn my place in it? But Jesus lovingly reframes the question because the answer is a who. It's Jesus who is our mother hen, who was burnt and charred so that we might know life, who was torn and beaten that we might know our home with him again. But while his wings are spread wide open for us, the question is, will we strive now to know his voice, to find our voice under the shelter of his wings, to be loved and to love in return? I promise you there is fullness of life under his wings in the who of Jesus, come what may. The question is, will we strive to know his voice? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that you long for nothing other than for us to know you, to know your protection, to know your shelter. Fill us now afresh with your spirit that we would be able to hear your voice more clearly. Give us clear eyes as we seek you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.